March, our guest speaker at Gold Life and Everything was Tim Renshaw. He's the CEO of The Archer Project, a charity supporting homeless people in Sheffield. He shared wisdom, knowledge, experience of working with homeless people. And just before Christmas last year, he spent 14 days sleeping rough in churchyards around the city to try and get into the mind and experience of some of the people he helps. What he said in the evening was fascinating. We've got about 20 minutes of him talking, but then there's a bit of time with questions and answers from people who were there on the night. There's The whole lot is here for you to enjoy, learn from, and uh, be challenged by. I hope you like it. Good evening. Sorry to interrupt your conversation. Um, if you haven't quite got your food or your drink, carry on. That would be great. And there'll be a chance to go and get it again afterwards if you think you finished and you wish you'd got more. Um, it's lovely to see you. Um, Tim is here with us, so um, come along. Um, and uh, can we... I've said your name, but um, what, uh, what, what, who are you and what do you do? Um, I'm, I, I'm part of the Cathedral Arts Project, and I've been at the Cathedral Arts Project for nearly 18 years. Um, <clears throat> but I'm here, um, partly to talk a bit about the Arts Project, but because last October uh, I did 14 days or 14 nights um, sleeping out, and those, those 17 years fed into those 14 nights or influenced, uh, informed it hugely. Yeah. Nice. So we'll hear about that. We did um, <clears throat> talk a bit about that at church. So we kind of, a few of us know, and Joy read out a few of your blogs because they were it, really, really interesting. Um, and a long time you've been there. The Archer Project, um, what does it do if, if we don't know? So we work with... Um, uh, adults who are homeless or in danger of becoming homeless or hopefully who have been homeless and are moving away into a settled life. So we, um, we work with people who are still on the street uh, through to uh, people who, um, who have employment, um, a settled home, a fairly settled life, employment. So we're looking at what does it take to build a settled life and people can move away from the arts project altogether in terms of their employment. Good. That sounds like the outcome is what, yeah. what it is. Nice. Um, yeah. Okay, well, tonight we, Tim's going to talk to us for a while, and then we'll have a chance to talk, chat about what he said and any, any questions we have to think about and share with the people around us what we think. And then um, me and Joy and Tim will have a chance to, to, to kind of lead a question and answer time. So we'll, you'll send in some questions and then we can unpack the things that Tim says a little bit more. So if you think of anything, oh, I'd like to ask that, just hold on to that, and you can obviously ask it later. That would be great. Um, over okay. to you. Thank you. <clears throat> and it's good that we've got a clock up there. I was wondering how I would know to shut up. There we are. Um, so the, the first, oh, first thing for me is to say thank you uh, for inviting me, and uh, I hope we have a fantastic discussion. The whole reason for doing... The 14 nights in the first place was to start a discussion on homelessness. And we've been having that discussion with the city for a number of years. Um, and uh, it was somebody else's uh, sleep out. It's going to be their way of raising money for the project, having been a part of the project. <clears throat> uh, but then they couldn't do it. And it seemed an ideal opportunity to, to have a conversation. 14 nights on the street, surely somebody's going to notice that. And so we blogged. And actually, we blogged with South Africa and Australia and Canada, and that surprised me. 
as well as Cardiff and lots of people in Sheffield and uh, London and, and whatever. And it, uh, um, so the, the point was to have that discussion and uh, what is homelessness and particularly we wanted to talk about things that many people don't think of, uh, particularly the idea of traumatic childhoods and how that influences people moving uh, out of mainstream society. And then what does it take for us to work with people to bring them back into a settled life and something like whatever we mean by normality, really. <clears throat> um, that was the idea. Uh, and beforehand, I wrote out something like eight blogs because I thought on my way round, I might not have the imagination to write much at all. I didn't use any of those blogs, it's happened, and I've lost them as well, actually. <clears throat> um, and that meant that we didn't really talk about some of the subjects that I thought we might. We talked about the experience of me uh, being homeless. And that was really, really quite deep. It was in many ways fake. Um, I, was, I left a home, I left a bed, I left a kitchen. It was all there, it didn't go anywhere. I walked away from it. I had my wallet in my pocket. I could have gone to the ATM at any point. I didn't. Um, uh, I had my phone with me at all times because I was the only rough sleeper in Sheffield that had to have a health and safety assessment and be aware <laughs> of reporting in and things like that. Um, and of course, I planned where I was going to sleep. Uh, but more than that, I got 17 years of stories in my head that were informing what I could and couldn't do. And, and that was really quite important. Uh, However, I still wasn't really prepared, I don't think you can be, for the emotional toll of what I was going through. So almost on the last night, and I wrote about it in one of the blogs, uh, I was halfway out to, um, to Totley, and I just had enough. Uh, five o'clock in the afternoon, um, uh, I, I, I was going to meet people out there, but they were people I knew. I'd been to... Totley Methodist Church a number of times, a wonderful support of the project, I knew them all, and I stopped in this bus shelter just past Sainsbury's and texted my wife, I've had enough, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it anymore. <clears throat> and at that moment in time, I, that's exactly what I felt. I don't know why, standing here now, it seems a bit soft of me, really, to be that far in and think, actually... But it's just the toll, the day-by-day -day toll. And the day-by-day -day toll, so one of the things I want to mention, is the total disconnection on the street. And um, uh, I, after I came back from the, the sleep-out, yeah, and during the sleep-out, I was in contact with people who were real rough sleepers, or had been real rough sleepers. And a few of them said to me that I needed to do a debrief. And so one... Wednesday afternoon, James took me off, and we had two hours, uh, and I found myself crying again in the middle of that two hours, uh, thinking about, talking about the experience of being on the street, his experience, my experience, <clears throat> and thinking about particularly a few things, and this thing about disconnection. And if you'll excuse me, we're all adults here, I'll only swear once tonight, but... We called it the fuck you moment, right? And, and I, I describe it best when I was walking through Millhouses Park. 
It just shows how little I know that part of the city. Uh, I needed the loo. I really needed the loo. And I knew Millhouses Park was there. It was bound to have a loo in Millhouses Park. You walk a long way through Millhouses Park to get the loo, but it was bound to have a loo. If I'd known the city slightly better, I'd have known if I'd have turned the other way and gone to Sainsbury's. The loos were really quite good in Sainsbury's. They're really quite basic in Millhouses Park. But I walked through Millhouses Park and uh, there were grandparents with grandchildren having picked them up from school, <coughs> um, taking them to the park roughly afternoon. I'm a grandparent. I could do that. There were there were parents, largely mums, with, with buggies pushing children through, talking to other mums with buggies. There were people meeting in the, in the what looked like, for me, the very middle-class uh, cafe in Millhouses Park. And everything about me said, I do not belong in this park or with these people. I don't belong. And I resented the fact that they did. I didn't want to take it away from them. I, I was glad they had it. In, uh, a week later, I was wandering through a park myself, enjoying buying coffee, enjoying all those things that I could access. The point was uh, that I couldn't access them. I didn't belong in them. It's this shared geography but different society thing about being homeless. When I talked to James about it, James said, um, uh, it's worse. <laughs> you know, I only did 14 nights. It's worse. Uh, being several months on the streets of Chester, uh, when he had a routine to keep, to keep himself um, alive, uh, to keep himself uh, with the drugs that he needed every day as an addict, um, to make sure that he had a safe place to stay at night and all of those sorts of things. Uh, he looked at people on the street, passing on the street, and it was the little things that he was really jealous of. One person reaching out to hold somebody else's hand. How long was it since somebody had held his hand? Uh, watching people just do normal things like turning into shops, knowing that they could buy stuff in those shops. Not much. Just normal stuff. And he would sit on the street and he'd look at people and he'd realize that he had no part in their world. On the Wednesday night of the first week, I was walking down John Street on my way to Healy and uh, Bramall Lane was just opening up. The, uh, the stewards were sat in a van and having a little pep talk and then jumped out of the van. The burger bars were opening their things and making sure they were all stable in case anybody came to rock them or something, I don't know. But anyway, they were doing all of that sort of work. Uh, and uh, I'm a forest fan, so I didn't particularly want to go to Bramall Lane, but it struck me at that moment in time, <clears throat> um, I'd love to go, I'd love to go, and I can't go. I talked to James about it, I said, why did I think I couldn't go? Of course I could go, really. I mean, I haven't got a ticket. He said, well, you couldn't, could you, really? said, because you smell, don't you? How are you going to feel comfortable sitting next to somebody in a football st And you've got your bag. Where are you going to dump that? Where are you going to put it? Says, and besides, okay, you could blag a ticket, maybe, maybe, but you can't really. The thing is, when I was on the street, he said, there was no way I belonged in places like that. I just did not belong.
They were not options for me. If somebody gave me a load of money that day, I couldn't think, oh yeah, I can go and join in the stuff that everybody else joins in. You can't. You're disconnected, you don't belong. Now that really, really hurt me, <laughs> hugely. Um, because when you've sat on the street waiting for the day to go, and in the middle of the day or middle of the afternoon, you know that all you're waiting for is more of the same, which is nothing for the rest of the day. So the next moment is gonna be nothing and the next moment is gonna be nothing. And you look around and you see everybody else has got something. Then you start to get to the place of the real disconnection. And yes, uh, people do occupy themselves, but actually all of that antisocial behavior started to make sense to me. <laughs> you know, how long could I just be by myself before I'd want to join a little group? And then I'd want to be away from the little group. I listened to the, the voice of homelessness around me, the different people, people who found sheds in to sleep because they'd come into the city, meet maybe a couple of people, but then find their secluded place in the evening. <clears throat> uh, a lad who has been, because he's, um, he has no recourse to public funds, been on our streets for over 10 years. Uh, for the last four years, he's had the same place to sleep. And he goes there really quite late in the evening because then nobody notices him. Uh, he sleeps there and he gets up really early in the morning and he makes sure everything looks fine before anybody can come to that building to start the day and he's away. And he has to go through all of this waiting around in order to get back there and be really conscious about getting up early in the morning in order to leave just to protect the place that is safe for him to stay in the city. Uh, he's done pretty well. He reckons he's done four years in the same spot. That's not bad, really, by himself, because that's the other thing, <clears throat> as some of them pointed out to me. Getting rid of other street people at the right time in the evening is not always easy. But if you want to protect yourself, if you want to go to your safe space, that's what you'll probably do. Making sure other people aren't, aren't spotting you. Spending all day wanting to be noticed by others. Only come to the night time when you want, pray and hope that nobody, nobody in the world is looking at you. To move away. <clears throat> that disconnection is made worse by what we believe is true that uh, about... The figures are roughly about 85% of people who end up long-term street homeless have suffered uh, um, child trauma. Um, and some of the stories are really horrible stories. Um, imagine the worst, and we'll be talking the, about people who are, on, who are on our streets at the moment. Um, and uh, dealing with that whilst trying to manage life, then becomes part of the problem. When I was in Healy uh, that night at Christchurch, I think it's Christchurch, Healy, um, somebody had got there before me, somebody, a genuine real sleeper, he'd come out to meet me there, but he'd met the church ahead of me. And uh, they'd already organized a meal for him, he'd sent them off here everywhere, he was fantastic, he'd sorted them. Um, 
And uh, then they were sat around talking at night, and he just said that one comment. If I could cope with what my dad did to me, I could cope with anything. And I didn't need to know any more. We've heard all the stories. We've heard all the stories. That I can cope with anything. That was one of the hardest nights for me because it rained that night. And it was the first time I put my tent up. Uh, lots of homeless people have, well, lots of, enough homeless people have tents for me to justify that I could take a tent with me. <clears throat> um, but he wouldn't share the tent with me. Now, at a really deep level, there was a, oh, thank goodness, because he stank. <laughs> it would not have been a pleasant night. But, but, uh, but at another level, that really hurt. So I kept checking. In the morning, there he was, wet in his sleeping bag because it rained all night in the long grass. Um, he wouldn't normally sleep there. Um, and I walked away wondering what it is in life that has brought that person to that place which says, this is okay. This is good enough. And that's the real problem. We've got a whole load of people who get to a place in life where they're able to say, this is good enough for me. And feel uh, exiled by society, um, sharing the same place, but not the same facilities. Sharing the same place, but not the same values. Uh, sharing the same place, but not the self, uh, but not the same expectations about what life may be delivered, uh, what life may deliver. Um, a few years ago, I was working with one of those people who have uh, made it away from the street into our social enterprises, and, and he, was, uh, he was cleaning. And I'd known this uh, lad for 10 years, probably. And it was the last three of those years that he really made progress. And uh, I was filming him because we wanted to put a, a video clip in as a part of an application. And so I asked him the most straightforwardly, how on earth did it take this long to get you here? And uh, he said, well, because, 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 well, well, because that's where I belong, was his answer. I said, but you don't belong there, you don't belong there, you can see that now. I said, and besides, I can remember having so many conversations with you about what you could do, what we could do, how we could move away, how we could build. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so what happened to those conversations? He said, I didn't believe you. I said, but you, you went along with me. He said, that was the easiest way to shut you up. Really? Huh? Why didn't you believe me? Because, because I just thought that was what life was. I thought that's what life would deliver. What is it about the thing we do to people that makes people start to think this is good enough? This is the best that it can be. I think that's the real problem. I was, uh, so I will, I've, I've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, but um, for a long time now, I, I do morning prayer uh, most mornings. And um, uh, 
And in the Benedictus, at the end of the Benedictus, there's this little line about uh, uh, light coming into the darkness for those people who are stuck there, the dawn, the dawn coming. That's one of my daily prayers for this sort of group. I wonder what your daily prayer might be. That's just one little question. <clears throat> the other bit of scripture, and, and I've been through quite a few different bits that I stay with for, for quite a long time. But one of them I've come back to is Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and wept. It's a prayer of exile. Uh, so this group of people uh, were in their own land, were in uh, Israel, were in Jerusalem, uh, and now they're not. And it's a psalm of resentment. So we hang our guitars and banjos in our modern version, because we don't often play harps or lyres or anything like that. <clears throat> we hang them in the trees, uh, not to keep them safe off the ground, but because we refuse to play them and sing songs, the songs that we would have sang, the songs of our normality. We refuse to sing them because we're in this place. And then the song gets slightly worse because at the end, it says we feel so resentful that given the chance, we're going to take the babies of the people who put us here and smash their heads against the rock or something like that. Of course, that doesn't happen. That never happens. But it does help me to think about that F.U. moment. What is, what is it like? Is it abnormal to have that F.U. moment? I think scripture tells me it's not. It's just that you need the right conditions to have it. And when people sing that psalm of F.U., it's a very serious psalm, and it should be a psalm that we listen to. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that too. So I'm going to stop there because I've done 20 minutes. I agreed to do 20 minutes. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, see what we do in discussions. Yeah? That would be great, yeah. Um, well, we could listen for a long time, but I'm sure we can all have something to say and then come back with some more questions. Um, if that's okay with everybody, yeah? yeah? Super, thank you so much. So we'll have a little break. You can get some food. And, well, exactly. Um, and then uh, I'm sure there's lots of other things we'd like to hear from you. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you. Um, great conversations that we can hear going on. Um, we've sat to have texted in some questions. If you have another question, feel free to send it through, um, and um, we'll we'll check them and, and chat as we as we do. We've also asked him to share some more stories of his experience and the people who know is kind of in answer to those questions because it's great to hear. Um, a number of people asked a similar thing about what we could practically do. So. We walk down the street and there's a homeless person there. We want to do something kind and helpful. What is a good thing to do? What's a bad thing to do? Something that's going to make a difference to them in a positive way. And, and the, the major thing is to acknowledge people. To look, even if it's just a nod of the head and, uh, uh, and a, a hello, really. That's, uh, 
first and foremost. We had this discussion here about uh, people asking for things, what do you do, how do you respond? And uh, my answer is that I can't really tell you what you can do, but I can tell you what I think goes on uh, when, we, when we do give or when we uh, see people begging and, and uh, we respond with money. But first of all, if Chris was here, uh, a, a lad I've worked with who's, uh, he's been in, if you go on the website, he's in videos on the website, he would argue long and fervently that when he was on the street and he was an addict, if he didn't get money for that drugs every day, his life was absolutely torture. So he would argue all day long that if you give money, great, <laughs> because that got him through the day. My problem is not that people are using drugs. Addicts use drugs. Alcoholics need alcohol. That's a, that's a given. So if we don't give them money, somehow they will do anything they can to get that because that's a need. My problem with uh, giving money is uh, that it keeps people in that position. Uh, if, if you look at some of the lengths of the shifts people are doing who are begging on the street, uh, they're seven, eight, nine, beyond my home time. If, you know, if I go to the theatre, I'll still see some people eh, in uh, Tudor Square after the theatre late at night. If I went down West Street, there'd be people there. That's a long time. Now, if you're giving that much time to earning that money, you're giving no time at all to me to work with you to help you build a new life. <clears throat> uh, so that's why I'm against begging, um, uh, or against giving uh, money to people who are begging. Um, yes, food, but as a few people said, always ask if people want food, never assume, because they may be sitting on a whole pile of sandwiches uh, that people have given that day. <clears throat> um, uh, and I will buy people drinks and things, and uh, people will ask me directly, uh, nobody ever asked me for money that I know anyway these days. Um, but, yeah. So, uh, but it is about... Uh, and, and also, when, when I was on the street, <coughs> it, was, it was really interesting. You feel this sense that you're not connected to anything. And then somebody talks to you, and it's an instant hit. Uh, it really is. You know, you, you're, you've been acknowledged by somebody. Uh, I wrote about this in the blog outside St. Aidan's. Um, where a few people had passed me and I'd seen, uh, this is a really strange thing, seeing people notice you and make sure they can't look at you because their head's slightly turned as they walk past. That is a really, really strange thing. But it makes you feel everything that you think about yourself. You know, I'm, I'm not part of this world and this person's telling me so. So when that woman walked past and then, did a double take and looked at me and, and, and beamed, uh, hello, that was wonderful, you know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and when we talk about disconnection, disconnection, uh, uh, it, it's a human thing. So the answer is always a human thing. Uh, I didn't feel connected, disconnected from the swings in the park or the seats, I could, it was the people. Uh, and everywhere I went, it's about people. 
So as soon as we as people start to reconnect and acknowledge people, we help people to feel part of our world again. Not to the extent that we really want them to be a part of our world, but it's a, it's a small and important step. I'm going to go off piste really early. Okay, so apologies. Because I wrote my master's dissertation on disconnection, trying to argue that disconnection was the fundamental human problem. My, um, and that when we're talking about uh, human experience yeah. and trying to contextualize the gospel yeah. in a way that people perhaps who are unchurched would understand, using the language of disconnection and reconnection is a really helpful way to explain what the gospel's about. So I'm really interested to hear you talk about disconnection being one of the deepest problems that you, you experienced on the street and that you've witnessed for other people. Yeah. Could you say a bit more about that? Yes, uh, happily. <coughs> um, but also, uh, we're both also interested in trauma. And uh, one of the things about trauma is uh, the brain space you live in. Um, so uh, if people are heavily traumatized and, that, and they're living in a place where that trauma is continuing, there's a chance they're living in that emotional part of the brain, which is the, they often heard of uh, fight, flight, freeze, reaction space. Uh, and um, when we're meeting people who are coming in off the street uh, quite a lot, that's the, that's the bit of the person we're often meeting. We're still in that space. So we call it the reactionary space. People are reacting rather than being proactive. And uh, I think one of the things about the, the disconnection is, uh, especially with trauma, is that we're not connected with all that we can do or be or have in, in our bodies, in our brain. Uh, one of the things that connecting, reconnecting with people does is to help take them outside of that brain, that emotional brain, and back into other parts of the brain. So we do uh, really simple things. So <clears throat> if you start to talk to somebody, walk and talk to somebody, you find there's a different conversation than if you sit somebody down and interview somebody. Right? It's a really basic thing. Everybody knows it to be true. If you, uh, if you sit down and talk to somebody while they're eating and they're concentrated on eating, their conversation with you is really quite different from, again, <coughs> a much more pointed conversation. So, for me, connection is about, um, uh, is, is about trying to make sure that the person is in a space where they feel comfortable to let go of their wariness of speaking to you and to us. Um, one of the passages in, uh, one of the um, uh, parables I reflected on for a long time, and this won't surprise anybody, is uh, the parable of the prodigal. And uh, in the prodigal, you have somebody who becomes really disconnected. Uh, he takes his money, goes away, he has a great time, does all the stuff that everybody's told him probably he shouldn't do because he's wasting his money, 
And then we have this bit, really short bit in the middle of the parable, where he's with the pigs. It's just him and the pigs. And he is totally, totally disconnected. His life has no meaning for him anymore. <clears throat> and he decides to go uh, to where he can get something more than that. Right? He decides to go back to his, we know the story, he decides to go back to his dad because even as a slave he will be better treated. <clears throat> if we put it in this day and age, he decides to go, well, as Costell said, he decides to go to the church over the road because there will be somebody here. You decide to go to the Arts Project or to Ben's Centre. You decide to go somewhere where you can think that you'll be received. And that's a really, really important thing. Now, the thing about the parable for me is, and the challenge for me as somebody who runs a service, is the extent to which the father goes to meet the, the prodigal, the returning prodigal. So, now, I've worked with people who have come in the centre with urine stains all across the front and wet legs down each side and I can smell the poo because they're doubly incontinent. <clears throat> the idea of running towards that person and wrapping my arms around them and saying, come on in, does not feature largely in my uh, normal idea of a good work day. <clears throat> but there's a challenge because that's exactly what that person needs. Now, the person who used to come in in that state is no longer in that state because the system slowly sorted it. They accepted him, they dealt with him. Yes, he went into our showers and all sorts of stuff went our drain, down our drain that we really, we cleaned it afterwards, all that sort of stuff. But his alcoholism was recognized and his uh, brain disorder affected by alcoholism was recognized. And he was brought back in and he was treated. And uh, the treatment means that he's now living in a safe place where his double incontinence is no longer so severe. In fact, I think he's probably okay uh, with it. But the point is he's in a safe place because people got around him and reconnected him. The question I have is, why would it have to be that severe for us to take all those steps to get him into a safe place? On our streets, we've got lots of people in terrible places. Uh, going out as the father, to put the ring on the finger, to put shoes on the, on the bare feet, to wrap a coat around, to think of slaying, I'm a vegetarian, so this wouldn't necessarily do it for me, but slaying the fatted calf, all of those sorts of things. What are they in today's life, really? That's connection. Is it, and, and, and what does that person feel like? Well, he accepted the party, it seemed to me. We don't know that, but he accepted the party. He accepted the celebration. And um, what does that space feel like? Um, um, there are people around who could tell us what it, what it feels like to be welcomed in. For me, on the sleep out, it was getting to Totley when I wanted to go home and uh, um, being welcomed by the woman whose name has just gone out of my head. But uh, Colette, uh, Colette, and uh, then there's a couple with a, a, a girl with learning disabilities who just wants to give you sweets. That's a really nice thing to be welcomed by, you know, and to have that connection again, I think it's really important.
Thank you. Um, if, if we want to help develop connection, we know, we'd know that in the daytime, we could refer people to the actual project, try and encourage them to, to go there. Um, there's a couple of questions about what to do if at nighttime, for, to, where to point people. Um, someone said that um, they offered to, a place for someone to sleep, like to pay for a hotel, I think, for them. And the, the person said, no, they were in a supermarket or outside a supermarket. And they said they'd rather stay there. So sort of, did they do the wrong thing or why did the person not accept a place to stay? That seemed to us like a, to them like a safe thing. But, and where, where can we, apart from the Archer Project, maybe at night time, where can we encourage people to go? Um, I think within that as well, I'm aware that for me, it feels like these, there's people with a lot of issues and trauma and it's quite difficult to know how to safely approach that for, for, for us both, I think. So where can we direct people where there's people who do have the knowledge and skills to support? Yeah, just that last point, I think it's really important. I think if you feel confident talking to somebody on the street, that's great. If you don't, listen to that. It, it isn't, you know, I, I do want us to connect with everybody, but you've got to think about your own safety. Uh, and uh, if you're really lacking in confidence, you're likely to get tongue-tied and say all sorts of stuff that may make a person feel worse rather than better. So it's worth just uh, listening to that. The night time is really difficult because actually there is nothing really. There gets to a point in the night time. There gets to a point in the day at the Archer Project when we close the doors and there are times when people are asking if they can stay in the project at that time. Uh, if I had, uh, if I was a saint, probably, I'd stay on each of those days, uh, but I'm not. The reality is that uh, we don't have space. It, well, actually, the reality is that we're not going to make that person's life change in just a few hours. We're going to take a long time to change people's lives. It's, it's going to take weeks, months, sometimes years. And uh, people on the street have become incredibly resilient. Now, I say that even knowing that we still have deaths on the street. And that's a thing. Um, so the night time is an awful thing. And, and uh, one of my old workers phoned me up the other night when I was at home. She was in the pub. Uh, somebody had come in. What, what could she do? She was a fundraiser. She didn't know the frontline system that, that well. And they had a collection in the pub and bought a hotel space for that person. That's lovely. That's lovely. But that will happen for one night. There's, there'll be the next night again. <clears throat> um, so the real answer is, is that we have to work day by day in the days to make sure that we're finding long-term answers and not short-term uh, fixes, really, for people on the street. The long-term answers are much more, um, they're deeper. Um, and if I was really, you know, we, we've had um, 13 years of not investing in children's services or family services. And that's where our future homelessness is coming from. So uh, we can see the person on the street and we can get really torn up by that. We should be getting torn up by the fact that families are living in uh, um, uh, low incomes, high fights, uh, people turning to different drugs and whatever. 
all the evidence is that people turn to drugs and alcohol for reasons. Uh, some of it is a little bit of pleasure, but actually addiction comes from much more than that. It comes from deeper issues. And we're building them into this society today, it seems to me. So, um, so there's part of us that has to get socially political and say, actually, our families deserve better um, uh, in this society. And if our families are treated better, we will have less homeless in 25 years' time. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's a heavy reality, isn't it? It's, it's difficult when things are going to... Things that we do now, it's hard to see how we can make a difference for the future. And it does link to... A, a, a people were asking questions about how one-on-one -on -one we can make a difference. But who... I guess you kind of have partly answered that, but whose responsibility is it? Is it us? Is it the government? Is it churches kind of to take over to do that if we're not just going to have the inevitable that there's been issues with parental family support and so we accept that there's going to be more homeless people what can we do and whose responsibility is that uh, well it's all our responsibility um, uh, but we set up as groups in order to tackle certain things so we take on our responsibility because we do that uh, Churches have a long history, a, huge, a really long history of being at the forefront of thinking about those, those issues. Uh, it's no, no accident that, in that when the project started 89-90 at the end of a decade of decline, it was the cathedral that responded, it was the Roman Catholics that responded, set up St. Wilfrid's, uh, the Church's Homeless Forum started at that time, uh, homeless and Ruthless at Christmas, which isn't a faith-based organization, but came out of a group of faith-based people at the time. All of those things started at the same time. Um, and we have a series of soup kitchens that are related to churches. Now, I, I think that, we, that there's quite a lot there, but um, in terms of crisis uh, support, um, but crisis support only gets people over the first hurdle. And if I'm critical about uh, homeless services in Britain full stop, it is the amount of effort that's put into getting people off the street only for support to wane after that moment in time. Uh, we're seeing people move into uh, employment not knowing how to handle uh, the anxiety they feel at getting employment in the first place, of meeting new people in workplaces, and all of those sorts of things. We need to help that happen. We need to help people learn what it means to work and to enjoy work, all of those things. So there, I think there is a job for the church in thinking about non-crisis intervention when it comes to looking at homeless issues. How do we help people move beyond the getting off the street? So that normalization process, it's a terrible word. I use it because I think we all underst rough, roughly understand uh, what we're talking about when we say that, um, uh, is a really important part. How do people... So people go back to the street if they only mix with people they've come away from the street um, uh, 
if that's their social circle, if it's not expanded, if it's not taken into new places, then when things go wrong, that's their support system, and, and that doesn't work. So we need systems that help people to move beyond just being homeless. Really. Um, now, Church of England had a, a, a committee which started to look at whether it should spend some of its money on housing and invest in housing. Housing will be fantastic. We know we've got a national problem with housing and good quality housing is great. If people get into good quality housing, they need support to know how to do that good quality housing. We're all gifted in running homes. And most people here know how to run a home. Most people here know what to do uh, when the pipes burst or whatever, or the, the, the boiler doesn't come on on a cold December morning. After you've swore, you get on and you do the practical things. Uh, people who've been homeless a long time don't, don't know some of those things what to do. Um, so we have lots of skills here about how to help people just be average, everyday people. And, and that's a skill base and something we could do. So with that in mind, um, I've, I've come across in the past uh, some charities like Green Pastures or Hope Into Action that are Christian charities where churches buy a property and work with homeless people to rehabilitate them. Are they the sorts of things that you think churches can do? Are there examples of how you've seen churches support people to be rehabilitated in the community? Uh, yes, but I don't think it needs necessarily those organisations. I think it needs some structures. But what, what are we really talking about to make somebody feel good about life? Um, then we, we know there's an awful lot about mental health and dealing with mental health is quite difficult. That's just in our normal day community. But actually, if we're bringing people who are homeless back into that group of people, where we're able to have good conversations with them, supportive conversations, that aren't, you know, um, uh, that are, let's be truthful about it, it can be very demanding. <clears throat> but if we're doing enough to know what it is that stops that person from ticking properly. So there are a few things that are really common, um, dealing with mail. Right? If you, the number of people I know who, who just don't want to recognize that what, what's come through the door because it might be something bad. Why would it be something bad? There's no reason to that except for the fear. Uh, life hasn't liked me. Life has done everything it can to ruin me. Now something's coming through the door to give me bad news. Or I have used my money in a way that I shouldn't use my money. And that means that when I open that envelope, I'm going to realize that I can't afford to pay for whatever it is. Now, whilst ever that remains a secret, there's a problem. Whenever we can start to get those things out, we start to resolve issues, really. So I think we talk about really quite small things that don't necessarily need a... It, it's really important that green pastures do invest in housing and things like that. But we're talking at, a, at an even lesser level than that. How do we befriend actively and weed out the little thing that it is? So let me give you a story. We had a, a bloke who lived in a, 
in the woods in the south side of the city. And he lived there for years and we, we got him uh, into accommodation. He was an alcoholic. And um, uh, we took him and he bulk bought his alcohol. And uh, that's the first thing he bought. And put it in his cupboards. And then we bought food. So this was his agenda we worked with. Uh, he drank less alcohol because it was in stock. Right? He wasn't going to run out. He didn't need to drink through it really quickly. That was a revelation to us. That was fantastic. We went in once a fortnight to open his mail with him, to sit down and open his mail with him, and to make sure that he went to do his top-up of his shopping. Everything else, he seemed to manage really well. If there was an issue with benefits every now and then, we need to pick up and things like that. He would go and back into the woods with his sleeping bag every now and then and have a good night out in the woods, things like that. But by and large, he was living life really well with minimal intervention. The problem is, it had to be us that was doing it because we couldn't find anybody else to do it. Right? There was no group. And it's really difficult to put an advert out saying what willing volunteer wanted because who is that willing volunteer going to be? It could be anybody. There's, there's no checks and balances. Within a church system, we know there's checks and balances. So things like that then become possible. Oh, oh, I did. Well, I had a question about spirituality. Well, I'm going to tell you an experience I had just a week ago. Because I, I don't know if anyone's been in town recently, but town feels like a tough place at the moment. The city centre of Sheffield is not my favourite place to be. But I was in town two Saturdays ago in the afternoon. And I was just going into H&M, because I like a bit of H&M in the corner of the mall. And there was a lady on the opposite corner where Debenhams used to be um, singing uh, Christian songs with a banner. And uh, I'd seen this, uh, I'm assuming, street homeless, very, very intoxicated lady um, walking behind me uh, just previously. And I noticed that when she got to the lady singing the Christian songs, she fell to her knees and wept in the middle of the street. And there was I stood in the doorway of H&M watching, thinking, what do I do in this moment? And feeling really convicted to do something and not knowing quite what to do. So I just went and prayed with her for a few minutes and then went back and did some more shopping. But I, it really struck me that the rawness of people's experience renders them so open to something of God and that was an unusual level, you know, seeing someone literally just weeping in the street. Um, but could you say something about people's experience of hunger for God or the, the kind of spirituality amongst homeless people? Um, in, my, in my experience, I, I meet people who move away from... Um, the street or uh, having been homeless or in a place of being homeless uh, look for that sense of being born again and whether that's a Christian being born again or whatever but it's that sense of my life has been so deprived and empty up to this point in time that getting something can be a real spiritual experience I've also met many people who've never had that experience as well. 
but I see it. I, I see it. It's marked. Now, what's one of the big differences? I think is um, that there isn't that much opportunity for people who are homeless to really engage with faith stories. And if you don't engage with faith stories, you don't probably have a chance to relate to them. So um, uh, I can think of several people who at one time used to go along to Philadelphia uh, in, for their evening service. And that service was not really about preaching or a lot of talking at all. It was about singing and being together and experiencing a sense of warmth together, of community. And, uh, and when, I think when people are, are coming away from homelessness and are looking to fill that void, that's some of what they're looking for and that's some of what speaks to them. Uh, uh, I don't know that there's been any studies done on whether there is any, what we would call a, a logical sense of uh, understanding what it is you're turning to. You know, you do an alpha course, and the whole alpha course is designed to think about what is this God, who is this God, what did God do in order to make this experience of me uh, being with him a valid, real experience. I don't think there's been any studies to know whether people who are homeless who experience something spiritual have any any sort of real understanding of of content in that sort of way, and that bothers me a little bit because <clears throat> um, what what do they do with that spiritual experience as they go forward? You know, what does it mean um, in a time? Has anybody seen the the um, the Oscar-winning Irish film, the short, uh, with the lad with learned disabilities. If, if <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> yeah, anyway, it's really worth watching. At the end of it, <clears throat> uh, because it's based around the loss of his mom, <clears throat> at the end of it, he's, uh, he's, he's thinking he's got to leave his home, and he's on his knees saying his prayer to God. And then he says to God, uh, and I won't be in touch again until I really need to be really, uh, effectively, something like that. <laughs> and I think that's so honest. <laughs> uh, but I think that's probably true of, of the lack of opportunity to think about God within that homeless community as well. We've got through this, thank goodness. We can say thank God, but what does it mean beyond that? I, re I really don't know. Yeah, I guess it speaks to the fact that there is so... That, like you said before, the next step is so difficult to know and, and got to be navigated with. Um, on a slightly different topic, someone um, asked, it, wanted to kind of wonder why you said there was a lady you saw, but why are there so many more men, it seems, than there are ladies um, on the street? Um, I don't know. <laughs> what we do know that for some of those women who become pregnant early on, there's a safety net for them to move them off the street, but that doesn't explain the difference, really. Um, we know that, or we think that probably more women use friends' floors um, uh, as a short-term thing, 
to help them, and we certainly have worked with quite a lot of women who've done that. Um, but I don't know. Maybe it's just that women are better at those relationships and offer better support to one another than men do. I don't know. Um. I was just going to say, I imagine we're coming in to land in just a moment. I was so struck by the way you used Psalm 137 and that image of exile to describe the experience of homeless people. That, that's something that I'd, I'd never thought of it in that way before. But I think that's a really, really powerful image that I'll take from tonight and um, I'll use to reflect on when, when I'm thinking about how I, how I engage with people when I encounter them, that knowledge that they are having an experience of exile, I think, will, and disconnection will be really, really useful. So I just wanted to thank you for that bit of theological um, exposition, which I think has been really, really powerful. And also, that bit about dashing infants' heads against the rocks, I have never got it. So you just didn't, you know, two minutes, just crack that open. It was beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we just, I think, is, is there anything else you think it, you'd like to share with us? Um, uh, Loads, but not in four minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> is there anything that we uh, could do specifically to, to support you or support the Archer Project that like, kind of you're, you're crying out for in a way that we can do something to help you out? Um, I, I really value us being held in prayer. And it's a really it's a basic thing, I guess, but I really do value that. I think... Um, I'm a great believer God, God hears our prayers and uh, okay we don't see a great wad of money coming, we're not going to get a millionaire tomorrow morning coming in the morning uh, saying do what you want Tim it's not about that it's about having the patience every day, having the creativity to work through the next problem, having the compassion not to turn somebody away who irritates us like mad. All of those sorts of things, really. Uh, and your, your holding us in prayer is, is really, really valuable.